This podcast is presented by Resolver, a tech company for risk and security. Hi, everyone. I'm Tim Chisholm, and you're listening to The Watchdog, your eyes and ears on the latest news and rising threats in risk and security. In today's episode, we're going to delve into more detail about the motivations and response efforts surrounding a tragedy that hit very close to home for me. On April 23rd, a single assailant aggressively drove a white Chevrolet Express van across a sidewalk down a busy street in northern Toronto for roughly 1.4 miles, ramming as many pedestrians as he could. The incident ended with a nonviolent face-off between local law enforcement and the suspect who is now in custody and waiting to be tried. The horrific events resulted in 10 fatalities and 15 injured. I am joined today by extreme violence and threat assessment expert Dave Benson to discuss what happened on that devastating day, the motivations behind such cruel acts of violence, and what effective response and recovery should look like. Dave has close to 40 years of experience in the public and private sector in the areas of security management, protective operations, contingency planning, and vulnerability risk assessment and mitigation. After an accomplished career with the U.S. Department of State Bureau of Diplomatic Security as a senior special agent, Dave has moved on to found his own consultancy, DJ Benson and Associates, LLC. Dave will also be joining us as a speaker in a few weeks at Intersect, our annual Integrated Risk and Security Management Conference in San Diego. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward for, to your insight on this horrific event. Thank you very much for having me. So to start us off, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your career? I mean, you have an incredibly diverse experience in the security sector. So what first drew you to the industry? Well, thank you. Um, my interest really started in the desire to help people, uh, to understand why people behave and what they do and the way they do. And that, that explains why I've, my career has gravitated more towards the behavior side of safety and security. Uh, some of the highlights of my career, I did four tours abroad with the U.S. Department of State Diplomatic Security Service as a regional security officer at our embassy. I was one of the coordinators of the 1996 Olympic Games uh, in Atlanta from the State Department perspective, and I retired from the government as a director of diplomatic security training at our training center in Washington, D.C., where I was responsible for all security and law enforcement training. Since retiring, I spent a great deal of my time on the areas of workplace violence prevention, threat awareness, threat analysis, and threat assessment. And that really brings me to the topic of today, why these tragic events continue to happen and what are some things we can do about them. So let's dive right into that event. The suspect is a 24-year-old male who, despite allegedly suffering from social disability, for the most part gave no other indication that he could be capable of such an act. So how does someone get, I guess, radicalized to the point where an attack like this becomes their outlet? Or put differently, what are the factors that culminate uh, to get to that point? Well, compliments of uh, the advances in technology, such as social media, it's much easier, sadly, for individuals like this to find um, people with like interests uh, on the net. Almost always this comes about with some type of grievance, some kind of wrong. They feel they take it very personally. And most of the individuals that we deal with that that will commit these types of acts of violence uh, have some kind of diminished capacity to cope with, with life's problems, if you will. They personalize them, and then some of them, like clearly this individual did, jumped on what we call uh, the path to violence. Now, as we're going to find out here as we talk about this a little bit more, he found some people on the Internet that experienced like ideology, and that certainly paid a contributing factor to this event. And so when you say that they end up finding a kind of amplification in a medium like social media, 
is it a matter of these sorts of acts become amplified by the fact that once you sort of know that there's other people in the world that empathize with you, as opposed to allowing you to find a community and find a little bit less isolation, it actually starts to build kind of shared resentment and, and, and a shared disassociation. Is that how that kind of amplification works? Well, it is. And, and I, think, I, I think it's appropriate to use the term radicalized, even though there's no evidence to indicate that we have some kind of terrorist ideation here. Radicalization can take on lots of different uh, uh, forms. In this case, getting with a group of people, even if it's virtually, that's like-minded, that's suffering from the same issues that they feel they are, many times they will encourage and sometimes incite a violent behavior where maybe it might have taken longer or wouldn't have happened at all. So it's a, it's a, it's a very significant accelerant that we have to pay attention to. So you might have noticed that I haven't actually mentioned the suspect's name, and that is intentional. There's it's a lot of speculation around whether in chronicling the details of extreme violence like this van attack, we're giving the assailants the infamy and attention that they were seeking, and thus, I guess, perpetuating the cycle of violence and encouraging other like-minded would-be assailants to commit equally heinous acts. I'm curious what your stance is on this. I mean, should the media be mum on details? How do we give the public the information they're entitled to without providing the assailant with guess, his own perverse sense of glory? Well, it's a great question. And I think first and foremost, uh, the media has a responsibility, uh, as does government, to keep its populace informed, particularly of potential threats and events. That being said, I think we need to be very careful, and I am in the camp that says uh, we don't want to glorify these events by specifically naming these individuals, other than when it initially was reported that the events took place, because a few things happen here. One is many of them, as you rightly pointed out, are interested in notoriety, that they're not just interested in satisfying a grievance, they want to let others know uh, the suffering that they've been to and the suffering that they're about to inflict uh, on others. The other is what we call the path to violence, and I mentioned it earlier, and that really means that a certain group of people will take a grievance and kind of have an ideation, decide what they're going to do about this problem. In fact, they're going to take some overt actions. There's targeting that takes place, and then there's planning that goes into these events. And then sadly, we talk about going uh, the breach from thoughts to actions uh, that does that. Why is this important? Well, there's two things. Number one, if we can detect these behaviors ahead of time, we have a chance to avoid, in some cases, mitigate these violent acts, get the people, these folks, the, the help they need, or report it to the right circle so it can be, there can be an intervention strategy. The other thing to keep in mind is many of the perpetrators of extreme violence uh, incidents, and I prefer to say extreme violence because, as we pointed out here in this episode, it's not just uh, a weapon, it's not just a bomb. In this case, the weapon was a vehicle. They pay, t they pay attention, and in fact, they emulate and try to copy, if you will, uh, the techniques and path to violence of other individuals that have committed these acts. So for all those reasons, we need to do our best to demystify this process, encourage people to report things that don't seem right, and most importantly, do not glorify these perpetrators or the events. You know, it's interesting you're talking about the glorification of it. It's been an interesting kind of reemergence in recent times. The sort of documentaries have been coming out around what happened back at Ruby Ridge and then eventually Oklahoma City. And I find that you start to see in the pre-social media age how that kind of uh, interconnectedness happened, where you would have an event that was very, very widely covered in the media. And even if it wasn't intentionally glorified, I suppose that the information itself can be taken and glorified by the people that, that absorb it. And it makes me interested in this idea of 
being able to balance that reality where you want people to be informed with this. You want to be able to point out the kinds of markers for people to, to be aware of, to, to keep their eyes open for. But striking that balance then about what is it that you want to be looking out for? What are the kinds of things that you want people to be aware of versus how much of that kind of information then feeds into the ability for someone to carry out an attack and for someone to be able to carry out a kind of a level of violence they might not have otherwise even comprehended had it not been framed for them by the awareness training that was happening in the media. Is that something that is resonant to you at all? Or is, is this sort of a maybe an antiquated notion now in the age of social media where you can find this information if you want to find it? Well, certainly, uh, if you want to find information, you can find it. But we don't need to go out of our way with the best of intentions, and I'm not attacking the media with this, to provide every perverse, gory detail, planning how they did this. For example, the Sandy Hook uh, shooter, who I will not uh, dignify by identifying his name, uh, had a complete wall within his home researching and talking about tactics and techniques of situations that happened in Columbine, uh, and, and uh, Virginia Tech and other locations. So we know this is occurring. The other thing we know is that uh, on part of this path to violence concept, the more planning behavior that goes into it, frankly, the more likely they're going to attempt or do one of these attacks. So we don't need to um, assist in that process. Number two, if we're gonna glorify anything, it should be the victims, the communities, uh, that the resilience that they go through in dealing with these all too common issues nowadays. No, absolutely. As you had mentioned earlier, I mean, it's, it's thankfully this attack doesn't look like it was motivated or linked in any way to any terrorist ideologies, but the method of execution definitely gives pause as it's reminiscent of similar terrorist motivated attacks in Berlin and Nice and New York. So I guess why do these radicalized assailants seem to be moving more and more towards vehicle attacks? As local government, is there ways that people can even protect their citizens against these kinds of attacks and deter them in their cities? Well, I think I could break it down in my research and preparation for this podcast, break it down into three main areas. First of all, because the recent Toronto vehicular attack was driven by misogynistic ideology, vice terrorism, that doesn't mean it should not be classified as an act of terror. I promise you, and I tell my students, if you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, begin or during, beginning or during one of these events, you're not going to stop and say, well, let's see, what's the classification of this ideology? Hmm. Um, secondly, terrorists transcend group ideology. So these folks get on the internet, they compare notes. It's the same with uh, ultranational and white supremacy groups and other terrorist groups, other criminal organizations. They are going to adopt these techniques that others do. What has worked, what has not worked in the past. One of the reasons why the vehicular attacks have been somewhat successful is frankly they don't require a tremendous amount of planning and not a lot of expertise. If you can drive a vehicle and you can rent a van and you determine where you want to do this in a crowded area, there's much less planning and preparation that goes into it than saying picking uh, a location or a particular target or a school or whatever it might be uh, using other, uh, another type of weapon. So we've seen an emergence of this. And even though it's going to be consistent, I think, but, but limited threat to us, we have to be prepared to face those things. So clearly, this type of attack is not going to go away. And if I might say, particularly in countries like Canada, where it's traditionally very difficult to get other kinds of weaponry, the same thing in the UK, uh, even though we had this happen in New York as well, the fact of the matter is, it's much easier, as I said, to use a vehicle as a weapon, weaponize a vehicle, than go out and purchase a weapon and ammunition. So then, 
is it as a citizenry, are we now meant to be living on more of a high alert for this sort of thing? I mean, I have to admit, living in downtown Toronto, it's definitely crossed my mind that I feel now more inclined to avoid spaces where there is a particularly dense population of people. But at the same time, I also have that feeling that perhaps this is exactly the kind of, I don't know, a behavior that people and perpetrators of these kinds of attacks actually want me to be feeling. And, I, and I'm curious if there's a way we almost need to reconsider the spaces that we design in cities in such a way to allow people to feel as though they can still congregate and not be afraid that an attack like this, even from someone without a, a firearm, but someone with a vehicle can can interrupt it. Is, is, is that the level that this comes down to now? Is there a certain civic responsibility to design spaces with this in mind? Or do you have to more or less accept that these sorts of things can and will happen and you just can't let it interrupt your life to, a, to an extreme degree? Well, I think the answer is yes to both to a degree. So let me explain. I mean, I, I think cer certainly recognizing that these events, but I think it's important to point out to, to your listeners that these are still not common events. Mm. Uh, just because we turn on the television, just because we fire up our computers, uh, our iPads, and it seems like every other day there's some type of an event, the likelihood that you're going to be involved personally in some act of extreme violence like this is about the same as being struck by lightning. But the fact of the matter is, for anybody that's ever been struck by lightning or had a near miss, you know that if it happens, it's devastating uh, and the repercussions can, can live on for a long time. So on that, on that front, we want to pay attention. Uh, we need to recognize that while still not common, these things can happen at any place and any time, regardless of the kind of security uh, situations we put, the, uh, we, we put in in our community. Second of all, I do think a rethinking of certain parts of urban areas, downtown, you know, where maybe uh, you're going to put in um, pedestrian-only zones where maybe you had traffic flow in the past, changing laws, community awareness, and the reality of it is anything we can do to mitigate the possibility. But at the bottom line is it really rests with the individual citizens to be aware that this can happen and to hopefully with a little bit of training uh, make some decisions and options that can either mitigate it or avoid the event at all. One thing we can't continue to do is continue to say, I can't believe this happened. I didn't think it would ever happen to me. It can, it has, and it will when you least expect it. So we have to be better prepared both as a community and as individuals. So I'm curious if there's a difference in planning. So you were involved, if I'm not mistaken, with the uh, 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And Correct. I'm wondering if in a situation like that where you're able to anticipate to a certain degree that there is a chance now with the, with the level of nations coming together, the amount of people coming together, that you will probably put up a bit more of, a, of an effort to stem certain possibilities of terrorist attack or even uh, lone assailant attacks. Is there anything from that level of planning that applies to a more generalized public space design? Or is it, a, do we want to keep these lines very distinct that when we know explicitly that we're gonna be grabbing a lot of people and putting them in one place, that we make different accommodations than we do to the more general city planning, the more general public space planning that we do in urban areas? I think yes to both. Again, I think good planning uh, when we build, when we, uh, put together streets and thoroughfares are extremely important, a layered or a tiered approach, which is what we used at the Olympics. And I'm in no way advocating this kind of uh, bunker mentality that we do for Olympic venues, whereas vehicles can't get anywhere near. Mm -hmm. And then there's two or three screenings. You can do that if you have a specific threat. 
but just in general ter- just in general terms, placing things like decorative planters or bo- bollards on the street corner, just having simple decorative poles up that make it difficult for a vehicle larger than a bicycle to get through can make a huge difference. The other thing is do it during certain times of the year for festivals. So what I advocated to my clients in the UK when they had their issues with this recently, uh, if you're going to have a large com- uh, congregation of people and pedestrians, we want to make sure that they're as secure as possible while still being allowed um, to kind of have a good time uh, mm. in, in that way as well. These can, be, these can be added and subtracted based upon particular threats, but generally speaking, and then those places that are constantly foot traffic. And we saw this in our own country and the United States uh, when they, had, they decided to make the, uh, the area between the park and the White House Pennsylvania Avenue, if you will, pedestrian only. Hmm. And that was one of the reasons why they did that. So there's options. You can make it very aesthetically pleasing, but with a little thought, yeah, you can do a lot of that and make a big difference. So I want to shift back a bit to the attack that happened in in Toronto. Uh, The suspect appears to have made a Facebook post just prior to the incident, citing involuntary uh, celibacy as a potential motive and praising school shooter Elliot Rogers. He appears to have been radicalized online, as we said, uh, by similar self-described incels who have often expressed frustration with social norms and advocate for violence against women. Can we, I guess, garner anything from his active participation in this subculture? Is this uh, a relatively common motive for extreme acts of violence? I mean, I personally had never heard of it until this particular event. Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the, the incels the involuntary celibates. Uh, it's not a new group per se, but I think it's, been, it's risen more to prominence uh, with the increased exposure to social media where people that are like-minded, if you will, can compare notes and communicate. You know, one of the things that I always tell when I'm conducting threat assessments for clients, I'm less concerned with what people say because talk is cheap and more concerned at their behaviors and what people do. Hmm. And so one of the things we had here in, in hindsight is we had uh, this particular individual kind of, uh, um, you know, hero worshipped uh, the shooter from UC Santa Barbara, uh, in which six people were killed and 14 injured. Again, I'm not going to dignify his acts by his name, but most people will know who he is. He also uh, espoused this anti-feminine, uh, anti-woman uh, ideology. Uh, it's been going on for uh, that we know of about 50 plus years. We've not seen it weaponized to this point. Uh, will we see it again? It's absolutely possible. But I, I think the takeaway from this is if you bring yourself to a cause and you rally around it with others that agree with your plight, and maybe you happen to be the one in 100 individual that's having a diminished com- capacity to cope, either psychologically, uh, uh, um, physically, uh, economically, environmentally, uh, the, the laws and regulations where you happen to be living, these are one of the things that can bring people to get on that path to violence and can, in fact, be an absolute trigger, which is someone going from thoughts to violence to commit this. So I think you can see this again, if not necessarily in the incel rebellion, so to speak, but certainly with like movements. We've seen it with hate crimes, ultranationalists, and certainly with terrorists. Um, just to kind of point out here in my research uh, for being with you today, you know, there was an event in 1989, I believe in Montreal, at, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, mm-hmm. Eco Polytechnic, mm-hmm. and you, you, had, you had 14 women killed, and the excuse was combating feminism. So it's not the first time, although not specifically targeted this way, that this has been used. And so I think it's really important to recognize 
when, when individuals begin to uh, check out from the rest of society, recognize and identify with other like groups that perhaps are troubling and make sure we keep a monitor on that to make sure we, we're not going to have violent ideations as a result. Is the same, do the same rules apply? I mean, when I grew up, there was a lot of talk about being able to identify to a certain degree that kind of social isolation and being mindful of, of people who are really disconnecting from society as a potential threat. But I wonder now, as, as these people are able to find a kind of community online, and even though one part of them is now being, to a certain degree, radicalized, I feel their disassociation, and even to a certain degree, their disenfranchisement is somewhat mitigated by this online presence. Do, is there still, though, that sense that these people are demonstrating those social withdrawals, or is the ability for them to find a community, community online allowing them to perform more uh, conventionally, I suppose, uh, in society, allowing them to hide better in plain sight? Well, I think, we're, I think you're, you're, you've hit on something here that's a little bit of both. Another thing I want to point out is just having these views and just connecting with other people on the net doesn't mean you're going to be the next assassin. Mm. Uh, there's other things, there's other factors that have to come into place. And I mentioned it before, and it bears repeating. Planning behavior, picking a selected target, uh, the ability to actually do this, maybe even practicing this, all these types of things. And then one thing I didn't mention, it's a term we call in my business called leakage, in some way, shape, or form, letting people know that they're thinking about doing this. For example, in school shooters, almost always in the school shootings that we've had, the school shooters, according to the Secret Service uh, study, told another student. Mm. That's not necessarily the case when you're talking about organizations or other individuals outside of a, a, an educational setting. Sometimes they tell you by what they write. Sometimes they tell you by what they do. Uh, and so we need to pay attention to that. It, it, the, the art of threat assessment is putting all the pieces to that puzzle together. And of course, it, the, the grievance is important and, and the controversial views, but that by itself is not going to be a, 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 an indicator of a path to violence uh, that we want to see. What, we, what we're looking for is this progression uh, that I talked about before. I'm an individual and I'm in a situation where coworker, an acquaintance, starts expressing views along these lines or along similar lines, is it my responsibility, do you feel, to engage with them in a degree to draw out from them perhaps the severity of their, I don't say their condition, but of, of their worldview? Or is it more a case of hear that first blush, find someone, find the appropriate person potentially within my company or within my social circle to raise the alarm bells? Like at what point does my individual responsibilities start to ebb and it should now lead into me handing off the, the problem or handing off the information to someone perhaps better equipped to, to uh, analyze it. Well, interestingly enough, you've hit on a real hot button issue. Because once upon a time, when we talk about violence prevention or workplace violence prevention, we were wrestling with things like sexual harassment and bullying. And workplace violence prevention was kind of put on the back burner. Hmm. But sadly, because of some of these events that we all know, and are now have anniversary dates because of the tragedy, um, the, the, the discipline of violence prevention has moved forward. In a nutshell, what we want people to be aware of, what are behaviors of concern? Behaviors of concern are beha those behaviors that if clustered or clumped together, uh, give you a greater likelihood that the individual may be violent or commit a violent act. And so recognizing what they are 
And then the second important piece is who in the world do you report that to? Right. Uh, one of the things uh, that frustrates me a little bit, it's a, it's a great catchy saying, if you see something, say something. But Dave Benson always says, see what? We say what to who? Mm. And so we've got to put a little more meat on the bones on that. And that's going to be within a school, within your organization, within your city, within the law enforcement piece. What does that mean? Recognizing some potential concerns. Don't judge it. Share it with individuals that, that can process that and maybe come up with some intervention strategies, which don't have to be draconian. We're not talking about necessarily termination or jail or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, commitment or that type of thing. We could be talking about counseling or just talking through these issues, helping them with a particular issue that may, that may cause them to feel this way. And it might be a mission of hope to actually bring some of these people back from the abyss. It's happened in the past. It can happen again. So a balanced approach to violence prevention is recognize it. What appears to be a change in that individual? What we recognize as normal behavior, what's the change? Who do we share that with? And then who are the responsible organizations or parties that are going to process that information to make some prudent intervention strategies uh, on our behalf? That really is the essence of uh, workplace violence or violence in general prevention. And that's what we really want people to understand and, and practice every day. I guess the cynic in me, and it's, it's probably a misreading of the situation, I, I freely admit, but the cynic in me, I guess, worries that the better educated the 99% of the population that is in no way intended or will ever kind of end up on, the, on this path to violence, that by right. educating them, we're almost inadvertently educating the potential people who might be compelled to perform this act of violence and, and allowing them to better, I guess, slip through the fingers, slip through attention. Is that a fair assessment or is this a case of it takes so long or it takes so much to get people through the path that the, this kind of early education is, does not have quite that one-to-one -one relationship between uh, like level of information and applicability of that information uh, to be used as a, as a cover for someone compelled to violence? Well, Tim, believe it or not, uh, this is not... This is not new to me. I hear it quite a bit. Mm. And, so, and so what I tell our clients is, yes, th it, there's always a possibility that someone you're teaching or sharing or, or uh, providing awareness training to might be one of those individuals. But what I tell my clients is uh, any potential tactical advantage that at, that individual might get uh, is pales in comparison with a community that's prepared, aware, and able to respond to these type of behaviors. So I don't, worry about, I don't worry about that much. The second piece is much of what happens to these individuals if they do, in fact, go on this path to violence is deeply personal. Hmm. And so each situation is different. And many times they're not tactically focusing like a soldier might or like a terrorist might, for example, on the, uh, on the, on the mission, which is doing harm to somebody. They're looking to lash out, act out, and perform these acts to make them feel better and also let the world know that they've been wrong. It really is kind of two sides of that coin. And so for that reason, I don't worry about that as much as you might expect. It's more important for people to be aware of their surroundings, make some good decisions based upon their circumstances and report things that appear to be unusual uh, or just flat out wrong to them. Hmm. That's interesting. No, I, that makes a lot of sense. I want to shift a little bit now towards the law enforcement response to the attack. Uh, it was hailed as 
is the golden standard of suspect negotiation and situation diffusion. The law enforcement officer had the assailant's vehicle surrounded and despite the suspect claiming to have a gun and repeatedly jerking an unidentifiable object at the officer, he stood his ground and more impressively didn't resort to force of any kind before eventually getting the suspect to surrender. Uh, the officer was hailed as a hero and I'm curious if you can speak to that kind of response. Why is it so often just rare to replicate this type of nonviolent law enforcement response uh, in the first place? Well, I think first of all, to be fair uh, to law enforcement, we only hear about the events many times that don't go well. True. Uh, particularly in the United States. And so for every series of events where we might have law enforcement officers that either uh, behave badly or made bad decisions, uh, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of other cases where, other cases where uh, lives have been saved. That being said, I think it's really important to reemphasize, and I can say this being a former law enforcement officer, that um, understanding and getting proper training and desensitizing, if you will, uh, anti-bias training, recognizing that when you're approaching a suspect, there should be no bias as the race, color, creed, uh, what, what views you might believe that might be different than are ours. Number two is effective de-escalation skills. Not all events can be de-escalated. Now, clearly, I want to I commend the, the individuals that were responded, responsible for this one because they exercised great de-escalation skills. One of the things they had going for them, it appeared that they clearly had a plan, and they must have, it looked to me from the video that I've seen, that they either recognized early on that it wasn't in fact a weapon, or they didn't perceive it as a threat, and they responded uh, in kind of a, a de-escalating manner uh, before they, it would rise to the event of lethal force. Um, one thing I want to point out, though, is if you look at that video closely, right about the time that they're starting to get him under control, we have civilians popping up out of nowhere from mm -hmm. behind the vehicle, walking down the sidewalk, rubbernecking, if you will. That could have very easily escalated into a life-threatening situation, which would have compelled those officers to have to utilize deadly force. So each situation is different, but I absolutely agree with you uh, re-emphasizing uh, the steps and stairs of de-escalation that every event does not and should not lead to the deployment of, of lethal force. And then finally, I have an expression, and if I ever get around in my, in my copious free time, I'm going to do a white paper called just because you can doesn't mean you should. And what I mean by that is many times these cases are found to be legitimate responses because they were legal, in air quotes, right. as opposed to illegal behavior. Well, that's fine. So just because you can do it doesn't mean there's not some opportunities in between when you see those to deploy those short of you know, uh, deploying lethal force and a more balanced approach. But clearly, if the officer's life feels in danger or that of civilians around him, uh, they've got, he or she has got to do what they have to do. But clearly, de-escalation training and, and, and reinforcing that I think uh, needs to move forward. There's something at the top of your answer, actually, that, that really resonated with me too. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the top of the episode. But the fact that you're right, a, a lot of the stuff that gets publicized with regards to uh, officer response tends to be the negative. And I wonder if there's a responsibility on the part of the media to perhaps work harder to shine a light on the, on the positive experiences that, I mean, like this, but maybe not necessarily even such an extreme case, because I wonder if in the same way that we worry about the perpetual violence that comes from constantly glorifying these kinds of acts, 
if the inverse couldn't also be true or by glorifying the acts of restraint or glorifying the acts of de-escalation, it also kind of reinforces both within the public at large, but also within the law enforcement community, those kinds of acts and, and, and those kinds of things get repeated. And I think perhaps there, I'm curious what you would think about the idea that the media should perhaps have a bit of more responsibility on helping to create that kind of culture of de-escalation rather than sensationalizing uh, the, like you said, the minority of the negative events that actually uh, make the news. Absolutely. But I think it's a two-way street. I think in addition to the media being more responsible, and I do an awful lot of media interviews, so I have a great relationship with the media, but I'm very candid about that, reporting the facts, but also reporting the good news stories. I think also law enforcement and government agencies have a responsibility in their public affairs departments to do a little bit better job of that. A great example is here in my hometown of Orlando, Florida. Uh, as you know, we had the, the Pulse tragedy, nightclub mm -hmm. tragedy here just a couple of years ago. And one of the things that really shone through in that was the expert response of both the Orange County Sheriff's Office and the Orlando Police Department. Mm -hmm. And since that time, via social me media, they'll just put out uh, items of good news, an officer doing a good thing, or getting an award for being part of the community. I think everything has to be a balance, and I think that would help the situation too. So to understand, uh, particularly for our children growing up and within the community, that we're dealing with human beings here, but try not to stereotype these, these events as tragic as they are, because for every one of these events, there are hundreds of events many times in a community of, of law enforcement doing good by the community and making a difference in people's lives. I think that's a great point, Tim. Absolutely. Uh, so and one other factor I think that also often gets overlooked in these tragedies is the medical and emergency response teams. So the Sunnybrook Hospital in the northern part of Toronto received 10 of the victims that day in a rare code orange, which is broadly characterized as the code to indicate disaster. And U.S. hospitals, I believe it's called uh, extreme triage. The staff at Sunnybrook was praised for their composure, professionalism, and devoted effort in stabilizing the victims and the, that they were able to save. So I'm curious about what kind of training goes into preparing hospital staff for these emergency scenarios and what the impact is on the hospital staff when they are adequately prepared. Well, there's no substitute for training in general, whether it be from a safety, security, law enforcement, first responder standpoint, certainly within the medical community. I think the common denominator there is cross-training. Uh, uh, more and more organizations are working together. So for example, let's talk about even if we have law enforcement that responds to an active shooter event. Um, more and more jurisdictions are cross-training medical first responders to be right there with the team so they can save lives Whereas in the past, it would have been wait for the situation to clear, then you bring the medical personnel in. It works the same thing within a triage environment of the hospital. Uh, by all accounts, uh, uh, the, the Code Orange training that the host Sunnybrook Hospital received and had been doing paid tremendous dividends. There's no substitute. Now, make no mistake about it. There's no substitute for actually being in one of these crises. Mm -hmm. Anybody that's been through it says, you know, I can train it. I, I, I don't know what it feels like, but boy, by gosh, when I was in the middle of it. But by being aware, having that concept, when and if it does come, um, almost always there's, there's positive, favorable responses and, and, and just amazing heroics are done. I hearken back to the Pulse nightclub tragedy and as sad as that was, happily within three or four blocks of the nightclub was one of the best trauma centers, not only in the city of Orlando, but also within the southeastern United States. And these folks had 
uh, many of the surgeons were combat trained uh, and had been through this training, doctors, nurses, whatever it might be, and trained over and over and over again. So they were as prepared as they could be to save lives when it happened. And there's just no substitute for that. And then working together with their fellow police officers uh, and ambulance groups and whatever. So it makes a huge difference. It doesn't happen by accident. And comprehensive training in advance of these things is the key uh, for the most positive response possible. What are the psychological effects for survivors who live through this kind of trauma? I mean, I, I know myself, obviously, I've never been in law enforcement. I've never been a doctor. Uh, these are almost unrelatable situations to me. But I do imagine that there's got to be some level of psychic trauma that comes as a result of either obviously being a part of an event like this, but even witnessing an event like this. And I'm curious, what are the first steps of the recovery process? What do those steps look like? Well, first of all, organizations, whether it be a business, whether it be a city group or, or, or a community, need to understand what resources they need and have them ready when you need them. You know, contrary to popular belief, you just can't speed dial uh, a grief counselor or speed, speed dial a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And they need to be part of that planning process too, uh, number one. Number two, please bear in mind that every human being is wired differently. And their response to trauma is going to be very different. And oh, by the way, the trauma will be to the surgeons, to the nurses, uh, to the orderlies, to the police officers, uh, to the ambulance workers, to the fire department officials. And they may respond differently. In my personal case, when I've been through similar events like this, whether it be terrorist bombings or whatever, I was an individual that didn't have my meltdown until four to six months later. As odd as that sounds, I would get something that would trigger and remind me of the event. And so some people uh, react that way uh, immediately. But training, understanding that you're part of something greater than yourself, you're part of a team and you're working together and you're all in this together is the key. But it's a long process. We still have first responders here in the Central Florida area that are still recovering. And in some cases, it may take years. Some were able to come back and effectively do their work. Others were not. And we need to be compassionate, empathic, and understand that that's all part of the process. But what organizations and groups uh, and communities can do is to recognize what resources you have within that community, kind of trained to that standard so that we're ready. I can tell you the city of Orlando is stronger than it was before. We really wish we hadn't had this awful event. But how it brought law enforcement and first responders, you know, and the LGBTQ community and the rest of Orlando together has been nothing short uh, of miraculous. And I have no doubt uh, that Toronto will, is already doing the same thing. I like that. That's ending on a positive note, I think. I want to thank you so much, Dave, for joining us. Uh, your insight's been enlightening. If you like what you heard here today, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or directly on our website at resolver.com watchdog. If you love The Watchdog, I will be hosting a live podcast with some very special guests at Intersect in a couple of weeks. Intersect is a forward-thinking integrated risk and security management conference from May 20th to 23rd in San Diego, California. We have a bunch of unbelievable speakers lined up, including Dave. Uh, if you're interested in joining, I've got a special coupon code for Watchdog listeners. Visit resolver.com slash intersect. That's resolver.com slash intersect and use the coupon code WATCHDOG to save 20% on your conference pass. It's going to be a great event, jam-packed with content on risk and security. And of course, I will be there too. Thanks for listening.